let the market work its magic. My name is Matthew Kroll. And just like magic, it'll go away. One day it'll disappear. Excuse me while I throw up in my mouth. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film, totally under control. Which is exactly what we've got this podcast under sure. as we're talking right now, right? We we know what's happening. We're not starting late at all, listeners at home. You wouldn't know <laughs> that we were waiting for Shahir for a bit, but it's fine. We're totally under control. <laughs> totally under control. And in many cases when we do the podcast, there are some times when we're trying to engineer a... F- Engineer the choice of a film in order to have a conversation with a specific person. Right. And today is one of those days. Because I'm very glad to have Dr. Ross Firestone, dear old friend of ours, uh, and resident physician, also an MD, PhD in biochemistry, uh, join us to discuss uh, the horror film of 2020. (laughs) Uh, which uh, was described to me as uh, by a friend as uh, a horror film where we are the final girl. Uh, Dr. Ross, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Welcome, by the way, I'm going to call you Dr. Ross the entire time and not Dr. Firestone because that's just the way I am. I correct everyone except patients and you can call me Ross. <laughs> um, how are you doing? Like, uh, how, I mean, it seems like, uh, for many months, I was applauding outside my apartment because of uh, because of you directly. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. The funny thing about those applause is that they'd happen at 7 p.m. every night, and most shift changes in the hospital either happen at 8 o'clock or right before. So everyone who would have been applauded is inside giving sign out to each <laughs> other, which means nobody heard it. Oh, <laughs> and when you no! walk out... <laughs> and when you walked out, nobody would pay attention to you at all, right? Like you, you were coming out for the applause and and not getting it. Um, I would, lo- I loved getting it every day, but at the same time, when people would say things to me on the street, I'd get really embarrassed and bashful. Oh well, <laughs> don't be embarrassed and bashful, Ross. You might be, I think, I think the most accredited person we've had on this podcast. In terms of how many letters are after my name? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I have a question for you, which is that um, one of the things we love to talk to our guests about is their movie taste in general. And I was curious, right now, I don't know how much time you've had to watch movies, but outside of the film that we've actually watched, what do you, what do you use to unwind? What kind of movies do you sit back on uh, when you have a little bit of free time. Sure. So um, my girlfriend, who I live with, is a huge Jane Austen fan. And right, nice. we actually just did a big cleanup of our apartment. And to sort of have on the background, while we did that, we watched all six episodes of the 1995 British miniseries of Pride and Prejudice. And then <laughs> after that, we watched the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, which was only a feature film and not a six-episode miniseries. Is that the one with Matthew McFadden in The Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 one? Um, let me confirm. The guy from Succession? That um, kind of checks out, yes, weirdly, in my two, memory. Yeah, 2005 was with Matthew McFadden, and then the and the Lizzie Bennet was played by Kira Knightley. And then in the yes, 1995 right. version, Lizzie Bennet was played by Jennifer Eel, and Colin Firth played Mr. Darcy. That's right. And as far now, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I from from good friends uh, who are much more um, well versed in Jane Austen than I am, I have heard that uh, Colin Firth is the definitive Mr. Darcy. I would and agree. Will not hear otherwise. Yes, I think Matthew McFadden is definitely the inferior Mr. Darcy, but there is definitely a case to be made for Kira Knightley versus Jennifer Eel for Lizzie Bennet. <laughs> so if we had if we had Kira Knightley and Colin Firth, that would be the the ultimate Avengers mashup of the uh, Jane Austen universe. I think they're both. I think they're equal. It's hard to say. the 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 Lizzie Bennets have their pluses and minuses, but Colin Firth is definitely the superior Mr. Darcy. <laughs> well, uh, listeners at home, if you'd like to tell us your opinion on this, email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at onlymoviepod uh, for this or any any query you would like to. I thought I'd sneak that in there because honestly, I would love it if we could, like, I wish I wish we were big enough to have, like, the live Twitter poll right now. Like, just be like, <laughs> oh, no, boop, let's, because like, I, I want, I want, Listen. I want to hear what the, the people have to say about this. People are very, uh, um, uh, very... Um, opinionated about Mr. Darcy, and I and I know a lot of people who really will throw down for Colin Firth in that role. He's like the original Dreamboat. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I also, uh, there was a couple of fun stories. I, I did not realize this, uh, but my wife, Shivali, who you worked with, uh, or we were in an office together, at least in some, uh, at <laughs> some point during your careers, uh, mentioned that you were the first actual babysitter of my child. Oh. I did. I actually didn't know that, but I do distinctly remember. Um, it was, yeah. I don't want to divulge Shivali's medical history, um, yeah. on, on the air, but she had a, torn her Achilles tendon. Yeah, she had an accident. Was with her, with your son by by herself at home, and <laughs> I at the time was working in the lab that she was now working on more on the business side in, and she was struggling. So she called the lab, hoping to get one of the many people in the lab who were actually parents <laughs> on the other line. But I was the only one there at the time. She's like, "Ugh, I, I guess Ross will do." Um, so I went to my boss's office. I'm like, "Hey, Shivali needs help with childcare. Can I go?" And then. <laughs> She called me an Uber. <laughs> that's, I, I, I'm pretty sure you weren't the weren't the last choice. If that's if that's any <laughs> consolation there, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for joining us for this film. Uh, as we were emailing last night, you mentioned that this this particular film, uh, totally under control, directed by uh, Alex Gibney, Ophelia Hurtania, and Susan Hillinger, uh, kind of brought up some PTSD for you. So I hope. Uh, we can kind of talk through this conversation as um, as um, politely as possible. But obviously, one of the things that I wanted to do, we are leading up to an election at this point, and I was having a conversation with a couple of parents that I know, and a couple of really interesting comments came um, uh, were, were mentioned to me uh, as we were talking about the election. And one of them that really struck me... Um, was that it doesn't really matter who gets elected president. It doesn't affect us that much. And I was struck by that because at the time we were standing six feet apart from each other with face masks on because, and, and uh, trying to do a socially distanced play date with our children uh, because the schools aren't open. And I started thinking about that question a lot about how much does the president affect us? And in any normal year, I think that argument of um, them not affecting us too much, uh, a certain, certainly that argument could be made. This year certainly feels different um, for one very specific reason, which I'm sure you have front, uh, firsthand knowledge of. But Matt, for anyone who might be in the dark about what we're talking about, could you give us uh, a rundown of what the synopsis for Totally Under Control is? Oh, absolutely. Uh, totally Under Control is, as IMDb puts it, an in-depth look at how the United States government handled the response to the COVID-19 outbreak during the early months of the pandemic. Also, uh, I would just like to piggyback onto what Shahir just said. The whole reason we're supposed to have a government is so that we don't have to think about this sort of stuff. <laughs> and, oh boy, uh, do am, am I sad for the home education, the children of those parents you were talking to at this point uh, are, are going to have now, because that is an inaccurate statement. Yeah, no. And um, I think one other thing is that, you know, I, uh, myself and my family, we have one foot in New Zealand and one foot in the United States. And uh, for many people um, listening in uh, from around the world, uh, the response to COVID-19 in the United States might seem baffling uh, in terms of the politicization, politicization of mask wearing, for example, uh, the difficulty with social distancing, the inability for us to, uh, operate under quarantine in effective ways. And so at any rate, all of this is to say, I thought this film would make for an interesting discussion and for Dr. Firestone to join us, to tell us about those early months during the pandemic, to give us a kind of firsthand account of, um, uh, of what it was like to be in the emergency room. Aside from all of that, I mean, I guess curiously, what did you make of the film uh, as you watched it? Yeah, I thought it, you know, for me, it really just brought back a lot of bad memories. Like what you were saying is before how it was the horror movie where we were all cast as the final girl at the end. Like it almost seemed surreal when I was watching it because, you know, I, I lived this experience like we all did, but in a bit of a different way. And sort of watching it unfold, it like, it seems like it's something I should be scared of happening in the future instead of something that I acknowledged happened in the past. And it just like brought back all these horrible memories. And even though, you know, I ended up doing okay personally, and, you know, while I worked a little bit harder then, it wasn't so horrible. 
I think just like the fact that it occupied so much space in my mind at the time just made it like difficult to deal with. And like, that's the memory that just like was brought back the entire time. It was like very difficult for me to watch. <laughs> and I, w- I will stress the point as well is that we are still living through it because all three of us are currently streaming into each other's uh, into each other's lives via uh, a Skype call yeah. because we are still at the stage where we are socially distanced and are unable to see each other in person. So I think, uh, again, in New Zealand, for example, this is not the case. They have, um, I think, next to zero ca- uh, transmission right now. They just had like a full uh, rugby match or something. There was a full rugby match over the weekend. Uh, no mask, no social distancing. Um, I mean, obviously, it's still a concern, but but uh, the the response from the government kind of meant uh, a different set of outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and and in, look, no one is suggesting New Zealand uh, is in any way analogous to the United States in terms of size, government, and and, and a whole lot of <laughs> islandness. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but le- but one thing that has become apparent over the last um, six seven months ha- ha- is the value of good political leadership. And while uh, that will be, I think, part of the conversation that we'll uh, get to towards the end of this conversation, uh, I'm curious. Um, if 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 Ross, if you could sort of walk us through some experiences you had uh, from a firsthand perspective of what the first cases that you saw, I not felt like, but I guess what was your impression as the first cases started rolling in? What did you understand about COVID as it was coming in, and what did you learn as it was as you were starting to see cases? Sure. So just to clarify for everyone listening, I'm a resident physician. That means that I just recently finished medical school, and this is like a sort of on-the-job training for being a doctor. So I, I am a doctor, but I work under the supervision of people who've been doing this for a lot longer than I have. Mm-hmm. And sort of in that role, you know, a lot of what I do is sort of take marching orders from other people while sort of practicing being the person who gives out those those orders. Gotcha. Um, and as part of my residency program, you know, we spend different times in different parts of the hospital. And, you know, at the time the pandemic was really starting to kick up in New York City, which is where I am, um, I was doing a couple weeks in the emergency department, which is probably the worst place to be as those cases started to climb. And I think one of the things that I saw in the movie was that there weren't really any specific guidelines about who should be tested when someone comes into the hospital with, you know, cough, fever, and difficulty breathing. And, you know, we were, I was in the emergency department when that was really starting, when really things were really starting to pick up, when we were getting like, you know, hundreds of patients coming in every day with those symptoms. But at the same time, we weren't allowed, we weren't really testing them because they didn't meet official criteria. And a lot of what we were doing was kind of playing guessing games, like who do we think had COVID, who didn't? And because we weren't really testing everyone, it was a lot of just theory and conjecture, we had heard like, oh, sometimes this blood test shows this result um, when Mm. someone has COVID. And sometimes there's little clues here and there, which we were seeing over and over and over again. But, you know, I think a lot of it was just a lot of speculation. We knew this like thing was coming and it was going to come eventually. It was just a matter of when and just sort of getting through it day by day. I guess sort of something that the that the film touches on, but I w- I'm very curious about from a from an on the ground perspective because what the film and we'll get into sort of the mechanics of the film in a second. The film does a really good job, I think, of giving us the macro sort of lens of this. Like it, it conglomerated a lot of stories I had heard about or learned a little bit into a digestible thing over the course of two hours. That uh, I, I, it, it presented information very well. It did not, however. Uh, sort of give the perspective that I think Ross, you're going to be able to give in the sense of uh, we, we, we talked, you talked a little bit about guidelines, right? And the film actually talks about like how you, you weren't supposed to, te- you know, only supposed to test people based around like if they have certain symptoms or whatever, but it was all kind of nebulous, especially in the beginning. Was there anything, because there was no leadership, so to speak, uh, at the beginning of it from a, from a federal level, was there, as you were sort of making these guesstimates, like, okay, so say, someone comes in with all these symptoms were they being like whether or not they got the 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 test to decide if it was COVID or not did that determine what kind of treatment they got or like because the symptoms are the symptoms like did you just do what you could or were there certain things you were allowed to do if they did test positive like what what about like what was the differential there yeah, so we really had no idea what to do in terms of treatment at all. And that's something that the, the film touches on quite a bit, is like, especially this conversation around hydroxychloroquine, which is this drug that, that Trump had said at the time was going to be this really effective miracle cure based off this like, extremely limited data that had come out, um, I believe, from France, but don't quote me on that, mm-hmm. about, yeah. about its effectiveness. And you know, 
this is like at the time when I'm in the emergency department, we hadn't even thought about treatment because typically when someone comes in with a, with a viral illness, unless it's something that we know a lot about and have treatments for, usually we get something called supportive care, which is, you know, if their oxygen is low, we give them oxygen. If they need some fluid, we give them that and kind of just like get them through the disease until their body, you know, fights off that virus on its own, which is kind yeah, of top them off. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. Top them off. And that's kind of what things were doing at the beginning. Um, once I sort of left the emergency department and what I was doing sort of after that, really at the peak of the pandemic in New York, so that now we're talking about April, was actually on like the inpatient side. So people who are admitted to the hospital, they're too sick to go home. They have to be sleeping in the hospital overnight, taking care of those patients. And really, like, there was no direction. Um, you know, every, you know, supervising doctor just kind of made up their own rules and sort of said, okay, you know, we are going to give both of those Trump drugs or we're not, or we're going to give this drug, we're going to give that drug. You know, there was a lot of evidence that, you know, having patients lie on their stomach and flipping over every 12 hours was something that was helpful. So we were doing that. Um, but really, there was pretty much no rhyme or reason for what we were doing treatment wise. Um, and it was just all just guessing. Yeah. To, to sort of play, I guess, you know, in many ways, the film is um, uh, does place an indictment on Donald Trump for poor leadership and, and all of this. But I'm curious, you know, was there a sense that like. Uh, yes, poor leadership is one factor, but we just don't know a lot about this particular virus, and we don't know a lot about how to treat it. And 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 you know, as much as there is a problem with political leadership, a lot of people don't know a lot about this virus, and and you're just trying to make things up as you go anyway. Would like would this happen under any administration? Do you think? It's really hard to say. I think that you know, I, I obviously am not an expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't study this. You know, yeah. do I think it would have been that much better under a different president? You know, that's a counterfactual. I can't tell. Um, mm -hmm. You know, do I think more people would have worn masks if the president didn't say that it was not unnecessary and it kind of became this part of an, partisan issue? Yes. And do I think that would have made a difference? Probably. Um, yeah. I think that one thing that we really struggled with as a country, and I think was actually like one of the more shameful parts of being a physician working in America during COVID, was the fact that we had this massive opportunity to do a lot of research into what our treatments would be effective and... Mm -hmm. No one really did it in America at the mm. time. You know, there were a couple of trials here and there, but really the most influential trial that affects how we treat COVID patients now came out of the UK. And, you know, in a certain sense, they're in a position to do that because they have a nationalized health system. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, individual hospitals didn't be the one who want to, you know, to try to do an experiment on patients who are coming in, you know, give, give half of them this experimental drug and half of them nothing and see which group does better to see if this treatment's effective because... You know, what if the Trump drugs turn out to be a miracle cure and we didn't give them to half the patients in the hospital to see if they were effective? Like, how will that make our hospital look? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think because it came down to individual hospital systems, no one wanted to be like the one hospital group that was going to do the test. Um, but if there was that maybe more central leadership, that would have happened and we would have had some answers about what drugs do and don't work maybe a little sooner. Yeah, I, I feel like Donald Trump is our go-to, like, it, yes, it's kind of a source of, of a problem, but like, the the way like again kind of like what you just said ross i am not an expert in 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 politics either it's just sort of like it's the it's the anecdotal layman's thing right where like if a president or someone was there who had experience and or was good at leading people they would have at least been smart enough to be like oh well instead of hiring businessmen and and acquaintances and donors to high ranking positions in the government uh, some of them uh, at the CDC or elsewhere, uh, then we wouldn't have been in the predicament where people were trying to solve a global health crisis like a failing business. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, all, it all comes, you know, the, the shit rolls downhill, so to speak. Um, it's just, uh, it's funny because you, you look at even what the film posits, right? South Korea. Government just listened to the officials. They didn't hear what the officials had to say, not like it, and either ignore it or get new officials. <laughs> like, that's that's a failure of leadership. Um, yeah. It ended yeah. up being like a perfect storm, you know? It's a massive global event that happens during a first-term president's re-election year. You yep. know, regardless of who's elected, whether it's him or if it was Hillary Clinton instead, you know, they have a vested interest in things doing going better because yeah. that means they're yeah. more likely to get re-elected. And I think, like, you know... It ended up being very politicized, but, you know, it, it was in Trump's best interest at the time to try to play it down if, he, if what his goal was to get reelected. Um, you know, I think it's 
whether or not another Democratic politician would have done the same or whether they would have just, you know, gritted their teeth and said, this is a serious problem we got to deal with. And maybe I am partially responsible. Who knows? Yeah. So I want to go through some of the compartmentalized uh, topics that the, that the film kind of covers and just, again, try to reflect on the sort of personal um, on the ground um, uh, experiences that you had. Um, the first, I think, you know, like if, if we talk about a pandemic um, on a macro scale, there are a couple of issues. And, and the film kind of illustrates the fact that in October of 2019, um, the, the Trump administration itself and the HHS had actually run a simulation to to examine what, what to do in the, in the case of a pandemic. And they updated the pandemic playbook. And there are several factors that come into play in terms of um, uh, the, the correct responses. The first is the distribution of PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, and this is something that I think you would have firsthand experience of because as you know, some of us might have already forgotten, uh, around March, uh, April, there was a mad scramble for a number of products at the home level, you know, you know, things like hand sanitizer, soap. Uh, but at the actual, uh, at the sort of um, medical level, you know, people were, you know, we, we kept on hearing stories of nurses wrapping themselves in garbage bags, uh, uh, a lack of gloves and masks and face shields. I'm sort of curious, you know, if you uh, on the ground were kind of feeling that, you know, and people in the film itself, they sort of talk about the anxiety of seeing the supply chain diminish or their supply lines diminish. I, I kind of wonder how you were feeling about um, your own safety during that period. Sure. So the hospital that I work at, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, we actually got really lucky. Um, so we got, you know, we're a private hospital and a lot of very wealthy patients use our healthcare system, one of which being Warren Buffett. And he actually made yeah. a big donation of PPE to, her, to our hospital. So there was actually never a point where our hospital ran out of PPE, which actually was the case for a number of other hospitals in New York City. Um, one thing that did happen, though, is this like crisis mode where the hospital is like, we're going to run out of PPE, so we need to conserve mm -hmm. it as much as possible. And the ways yeah. in which people conserve PPE change like day to day. So, right. you know, these N95 masks, these masks that will filter out the COVID particles that you, we talked, they talked about in the mm -hmm. film all the time. That was something that was looked at as this like precious resource so the hospital had to ration as much as possible. And, you know, this type of PPE in the past before a pandemic would all be single use. Like you put it on, then you'd leave the patient's room and throw it away. And at the beginning, the way people decided to c conserve PPE was the plan was still for everything to be single use, but we would just limit the number of times that we would use it. So, you know, right. if you're just walking into the room of a patient who had COVID, you wouldn't necessarily need to wear an N95 mask. It's only if you were like sticking a swab up their nose that was going to mm -hmm. make them cough or you were, you know, giving them oxygen that was going to spray the virus into the air um, that you actually put the mask on. Um, later, they completely changed the way they wanted to conserve PPE. And this is what you saw more in the film, where you would have one mask that you would wear for sometimes multiple days before it would be mm -hmm. changed. Um, and just like being in the emergency room at the beginning when the rules were like, oh, you can hang out in a COVID patient's room without a mask as long as you're not doing anything that's going to make them cough. You know, that's something that I did. And I think I yeah. actually ended up contracting COVID probably around that time. Mm -hmm. um, right. And it might have been from that. So it's hard to say. I recall, like around the period, there were all sorts of uh, unusual rationing methods, and I think I think Harvard, uh, there was a study at the MIT Media Lab um, where they uh, ran some tests on how to recycle uh, M95 masks, including putting it in uh, in the oven for a little while and and heating it up for periods of time to see if that would kill off the virus um, and make it reusable again. I, I recall, and like at the time, so the interesting about the thing about a pandemic like this in the age of information is that suddenly everyone becomes familiar with the vernacular of pandemics. We're all talking about morbidity statistics and we're also talking about PPE in sort of careful ways. We're talking about vaccines. You know, suddenly the everyday person on the street has an opinion about these topics. Um, which I also, I, I was curious, you know, again, from an on the ground perspective, how patients were different, you know, like people coming in for COVID uh, or thinking they might have COVID uh, around this period. How were patient re reactions different? You know, I was a little surprised with how patients' reactions were different. You know, we had, we are, it's a very crowded hospital and there are a lot of people mm -hmm. who are close up together. And I thought that one of the like really early failures of the pandemic was that because you know testing wasn't super widespread, people weren't coming hospital coming to hospitals in order to get tested. And you know if you have a fever and a cough, but maybe you don't have COVID, you have something else, and you go to the hospital yeah. get tested, and there's a million people around you who have fever and a cough, and one of them does have COVID, suddenly you got a bigger problem. Um, so I think people you know thought to themselves and they're just like, oh, go to the hospital and everything will be fine, not realizing that like maybe the hospital wasn't exactly the safest place for them to be. 
um, in terms of people's reactions to having the virus, I think, you know, it's the full spectrum, you know, some people are like, oh, no, this is horrible to be like, this is what I assumed would happen. Um, and a lot of the time you had patients who weren't showing symptoms at all, were there for a completely different reason. But because we're testing every single person who comes in and then they just so happen to have it, they're like, oh, OK. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And then and then so. Uh, oh, Matt, sorry, I interrupted. Were you oh, about to jump in? No, no, no. I was just going to say it's it's. It, it had to have been sort of, um, I don't know if bracing is the right word, but like just with, with that difference in uh, patient reaction or, or patient sort of like um, I, I guess mood in, in the place because like it is how, how I'm trying to remember the statistics and one of you can correct me on this, but like in, in what do we know right now? Right. Like, is it, is it 20, how, how many people that contract do we think show symptoms at this point? Do we know? I don't have the number off the top of my head. Yeah. But it, yeah, right. like, because I imagine it's the idea of going in if finding, if, if you're feeling fine or going in for something else, finding out you're having it and having nothing wrong, that sends a different message because again, in American society, I think in particular, we are all quite individual or at least live in our own bubbles with our own sort of bubble people. Um, that might show, uh, that might make you think about the virus differently than, say, if you had enhanced system symptoms and you had two relatives pass away. Like, um, yeah, I, I just, I find it, I find it very interesting and, and, and it makes total sense that the reaction time would be, or the reaction uh, would differ in that regard. Oh yeah, totally. I think yeah. it's like, like I said, you know, so much a perfect storm for a global pandemic. The fact that, you know, some people are totally asymptomatic, but spread it really easily. Uh, yeah. It's just everything that could have possibly been amazing about this virus to kill as many people as possible, like happened <laughs> yeah. to happen. So then with, uh, I guess, you know, there are a couple of other um, sort of, uh, again, um, buckets of information that this film presents. I think, you know, one of the things about the documentary is, is I, I think it's a perfectly fine documentary. It, the interesting thing is it is a it is a, an immediate history that is happening as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, there are updates to the film uh, that uh, are presented uh, that we know happened last week, for example. Spoiler alert, Shahir! <laughs> so, um, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, you know, I guess what the film is presenting is essentially a timeline of events mm -hmm. um, with, and, and a, a sort of more um, um, sort of thoughtful perspective on what happened will come at a little later time, uh, as you know. Alex Gibney has done with many other of his documentaries. I highly recommend everyone watch uh, Enron, the smartest guys in the room, and uh, Taxi to the Dark Side. Mm -hmm. um, but but I guess uh, what when you as Ross as you were watching the film, what were the kind of surprises to you um, that you hadn't seen from your firsthand experiences? Yeah, I think a lot of the drama about getting testing done was something that I had very little familiarity with. So when they talked about, you know, the test that the CDC had developed and then it getting emergency approval, but there being a problem with it, you know, that was something that I was like completely unaware of before watching the movie. And, you know, that was something that I just experienced as like, oh, like we have this test and we have this test and we have this test because like so many different companies were developing tests. Um, and, you know, just knowing like when we use this test versus when we use another one, you know, we had a really accurate test that took a couple of days to come back at one point. And then another yeah. one that was a little bit less inaccurate, but took a couple hours. Um, so, you know, everyone yeah. got that really quick test right when they came in. And then you couldn't order that test again. And it was just like all, all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and I guess maybe um, the sort of logistics side of that was probably, you know, again, it's not something you want to be dealing with as a doctor or, or understanding. But there were certain issues with that first test, I think, in terms of the... Um, the, the sample sets that it was bringing on the 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 N3 versus the N1, uh, which, again, my wife, Dr. Gulab, was kind of excitedly jumping about saying, how could they do that in this first round of testing? Yeah. So as someone like conveniently, in addition to being a doctor, like you mentioned before, I do have a PhD in biochemistry and hearing the way that they did this, it just made no sense to me at all. And like right. one thing that I was just thinking about the entire time that people were like trying to figure out the deal with this test is like finding a test to detect viral genetic material is not hard at all right and like i'm not someone who studied viruses during my phd but like it would not be very difficult for anyone with my level of training to like make a test for this virus right. and like even the machines that they use in the movie for the test like i've used the same brand machine it's yeah. like not particularly challenging so i was just like at the time like 
this isn't hard. Like, give me a week. Like, I, I, any graduate student could do this. Like, this and, isn't hard. Right. This isn't difficult. That's the kind of the thing, too. Like, that it, – it, and I think the documentary actually does quite a good job at showing – that not, maybe not in that level of specificity because like I wouldn't know that as a layperson in this regard, but it makes so total sense with the tonality of the film because the entire thing like the thing that got me and I actually didn't, I guess I didn't follow this as 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 closely as as the film divulges the information. But you know when the first test came out and it was the three vials and the problem was with vial C, right? Um, I instantly before the film was continuing on, I think I actually said out loud, I'm like. Well, if the other two work and that's all you need, just use that. Like, just mm -hmm. use the first two. Like, right? Because, again, baseline logic. But what stopped people, and I didn't know this, uh, was just a month of bureaucracy. Was a month of idiocracy and, and not just signing a paper to say that that's okay. Like, because that's what happened at the end of it. Like, yes, there were new tests developed and whatnot, but as, as far as, like, using the resources that were available and that were already out, the solution was there. Doctors knew it a month before it was allowed. Like, uh, it, so it, it's interesting that both on a, on a, again, on the macro level of what this film shows, there's the ineptitude through uh, top-down uh, management. And, and sort of what you're saying, Ross, I think, is the, like... The, the bungling on the like uh, there was a ton of people that could have used this equipment and could have done this thing and made a thing to detect a viral uh i don't know the viral load or viral sample uh the, but they didn't because no one was leading the way yeah i just i think a lot of people I, I you know i don't actually know what went on so i can't comment <laughs> if this is like really how things happened but it seemed like kind of that situation where like everyone thinks someone else is calling 911 and then no mm -hmm. one calls 911. Like, Bystander <laughs> effect. Exactly. Yeah. And And was there any sort of yeah I I mean for me the again you know uh, uh knowing what was happening in New Zealand for example uh was there sort of any uh, sort of like international envy at seeing how South Korea was dealing with the problem? I mean the I you know like it really does highlight the point and that that testing was kind of the the first major step and South Korea seemed to be able to engage mass testing immediately and the results really kind of do speak for themselves with, with, you know, this is a point that I think has been made several times over is that South Korea experienced its first case the same day as America experienced its first case. At this stage, South Korea has 438 deaths with a total of 24,000 uh, cases, whereas of today, uh, the United States has 215,000 deaths and a total cases of 7 million. Um, was there, I, I guess, you know, like... When you watched uh, treatment in South Korea, you know, like setting up these sort of amazing um, testing sites that could be used and uh, immediately in drive-through testing, and then seeing the the sort of Korean uh, CDC counterpart say, "Look, I learned a lot about um, uh, immunology and viruses from the United States and from the from the CDC," and to see the way that they reacted was kind of disheartening. When I guess in the sort of inverse way, when you watched. South Korea's response. How did you feel about that? I mean, I was jealous. I think one thing <laughs> they did is they had remote testing sites where people could go get tested. At our hospital, we set up a tent where people would go get tested, but they were still in an environment around other people who had symptoms and they yeah. weren't yeah. protected from each other very well. And, you know, I think that's something that I always wanted to happen. And there was even a time early pandemic where my thought was, you know, maybe don't get tested. Just assume you have it and stay home. Because if you don't have it, you're going to get it if you go into a busy hospital where there are people who do. And if you do have it, you might give it to those people in the hospital who don't. Yeah. Can, can I ask a, a sort of a, a sensitive question? But um, I, it's one thing I think that we've been talking about in this episode, um, again, sort of indirectly, is the severity of the virus itself and the severity of the illness. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously if you don't want to answer this or don't, uh, or don't want to go into specific details, but I'm really, I, I am interested maybe just from a, a sort of an understanding of how, how severe COVID-19 is, what, what are some of the worst case scenarios that you saw or, you know, like, how would you describe the importance of, you know, now social distancing and wearing masks and stuff? Like what is the worst that can happen? So the worst that can happen to a person, and this is something that, I saw many times yeah. is like someone who's young and healthy gets the virus and dies within a week. And, you know, despite you throwing all hands on deck and giving as many things as they have, like someone can get very sick very quickly. 
That's not the typical way it goes. Usually it's people who do have a lot of other medical problems that get really serious cases, but it could hit anyone. And you know, right. we saw that time and time again. Right. Um, and I, I imagine that was a, a fairly challenging thing to watch because as, as we sort of, as the information has been, I, I guess this is the next stage of the documentary that's really sort of interesting is the way information about this virus has been um, distributed out. And, and you know, again, uh, to be fair, um, this is a novel virus um, and we are learning about it as we go along, but there have been certain um, uh, misinformation that, have, that, that has presented itself, one of which is that uh, younger people are immune to it. You know, I think uh, the president even spoke about the fact that it affects almost nobody as he, as he, um, as he said it. Um, one of the th- one of those pieces of misinformation that was really interesting, and I think you've already, ta- you've already talked about it, but is hydroxychloroquine. And the the rise of the idea that hydroxychloroquine was a cure, which I think, again, was something unique to the United States. Um, when the president started tweeting about hydroxychloroquine, what happened on the downstream side at hospitals? So people started getting it. You know, we yeah. had nothing that we could give that was something that we would know would fight the virus beyond what we talked about before, supportive care, you know, topping them off. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another drug that was mentioned, azithromycin. So that goes yeah. by another name, ZPAC. That's people take all the time uh, for different. It's an antibiotic for different infections. Uh, hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. is a drug that people usually get for different rheumatologic diseases, something like lupus. Yeah, um, or malaria, right? Is that so? That's like a different form. So chloroquine. Um, they're Copy. all like basically got the same backbone of the drug, but do different things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one one effect that hydroxychloroquine has is it has a little bit of an effect on your heart. It can sometimes increase the amount of time it takes your heart to kind of like recharge, so to speak. Um, And azithromycin, this other drug, does the same thing. And in the hospital, when we give multiple drugs that have this effect, you know, we even get a warning in our electronic medical record when we try to prescribe that drug saying, oh, you already gave a drug that has this specific effect on the heart. Do you really want to give another one? Right. Um, And this, you know, as we're looking at data now on that drug combination, it actually looks to be pretty harmful because that combination of drugs can have a lot of uh, side effects that can be life-threatening. So, you know, we were giving those drugs to everybody because we didn't really have anything else to go on. And I think that was like one of the re- one of the real failures of, of what we were able to do during the pandemic. You know, people wanted would rather do something than do nothing. And it turned yeah, out in this right. case, with what we had, doing nothing was better than doing something. Yeah, I think right. it, to me, I just got the, again, in a stressful environment, I got with, when you said that electronic like warning thing. Like just having to click through it because either you didn't, no one knew what to sort of do, or people kept asking for it. It fe- it feels like clicking through like a terms of service, like just being like, okay, whatever, just go. Like, well, yeah. I, I I mean, I wonder. So did did you have patients that would now specifically request it because they'd heard the president mention it? So that didn't happen to me. Um, right. You know, I worked on COVID units both when we were giving it to everyone and then when we stopped giving it to everyone. And, you know, right. to be fair, I'm practicing in New York where the overwhelming majority of people have a certain opinion about the president. And, right. <laughs> you know, I think for the most part, I didn't have any patients that were that were specifically requesting it. But sure. I'm sure it happened. I mean, just anecdotally, for example, uh, my accountant called and asked uh, my wife if he should be taking hydroxychloroquine um, and wanted to <laughs> understand whether he should be uh, using hydroxychloroquine because he'd heard the president mention it and he knew my wife was a, uh, a COVID-19 researcher. At least he um, asked. <laughs> like, that's so, a good thing. The thing that I told everyone, so chloroquine, the Q, the end part, quin. Um, yep. refers to the part of the molecule that's actually present in tonic water. Um, <laughs> and there's actually a lot of evidence to show that tonic water can actually treat malaria. Um, right. So there was potentially some evidence, very like, you know, quaternary, like to re- really loose, loose connections here at this point, that the ingredient in tonic water could theoretically fight COVID if it turned out that hydroxychloroquine worked. So what I told everyone was like, just stay home and have a gin and tonic. <laughs> and then like, theoretically, it's got to have a sim- similar benefit. <laughs> or at least hang out at home, G and T, let this whole thing blow over. Exactly. So then the, I guess one of the real final tiers of what this documentary is trying to do, and I think one of the, look, I'll, I'll be honest about it, why we're having this conversation about this particular, um, particular film around this period, around the election time, is, um, you know, and, and we've alluded to it uh, in discussing hydroxychloroquine already, is the effect of, uh, the, I guess let's call it the Donald Trump effect. Um, and the DTE, 
<laughs> whether we uh, have and, and, and this goes beyond your uh, your experience uh, as a physician, but but uh, you know, watching the documentary and kind of seeing the timeline of events as we understand it, of course, the bombshell that uh, Bob Woodward had released in his book uh, about what the president understood about the virus in February versus what he talked about in March, April, May, June, and July, um, and even as he has received treatment himself. Um, uh, for the disease uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago. what What is your opinion? And, and it, by the way, the New York Times has a really great piece about, uh, it's a similar timeline of events, but the thing that they really highlight is one of the, the, the most strategic, strategically important factors in a pandemic is health communications. And uh, it could be argued that the, the origination of most health communications begins with the president, uh, at least, uh, you know, as a spokesperson for uh, how to respond and how to... Um, uh, how to react to something like this. What did you think about the response from our leadership uh, watch, as presented by the documentary? You know, I think there are two parts of the documentary that really, you know, hit a note with me. And I think one of them yeah. was that idea of the last month. You know, there yeah. was that time in February yeah. where the virus was, you know, going nuts and nobody had any idea. And yeah. I think it ended up getting to, you know, I don't think there was any chance that the, that the U.S. was going to end up like New Zealand with barely any cases at all. But, you know, yeah. if there was a time for that to happen, that's when it would have been. Right. Um, and I think the other thing was just the hyper-partisanship that became associated with mask wearing. You know, right. theoretically, you can have a conversation. Does masking really work? You know, like maybe if you're wearing a mask, you're playing with it more often and you're getting your hands all over it, sure. which all the COVID particles are living on, and then you touch your face. Sure, fine. But that's not what the argument was. That's not what was happening. And a lot of the evidence that we have now is, you know, generally in support of masking. And yeah. I think, you know, if the president had come out and said, like, you know, we got this under control because that's the message that he wants to say. But now he says, but you should wear a mask to make sure we have it under control. Things would be a lot better. And right. I mean, you know, even we, even positing it as we have this under control, but we need your help in continuing to keep it under control. Like, there's so many ways to word it. Like, and you can keep that like individual American bullshit like rolling with it too. I I was just yeah. Yeah, I think you know if his his supporters, you know, they worship him and they'll do whatever he says. And I think if he had said like, yeah, wear a mask, and if he started selling MAGA masks right away, like oh. maybe you know maybe we would have had way fewer deaths than we did now. <laughs> Yeah, the I think for me the irony of this all is that the um, is the self defeating um, approach to this, which is that uh, it is an election year and this is a, a crisis of leadership. And if Donald Trump had kind of done the basic steps that most uh, countries had done, uh, we he would probably coast right into a second term um, because of you know. Um, uh, a, a con, you know, like a, a sake of continuity, at least. Um, but but there seemed to be, uh, you know, a, 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 every step that could be taken in the wrong direction seemed to be taken gleefully in the wrong direction. Um, you know, you're speaking about that partisanship around mask wearing. The it, it, uh, Zishan Alim, who's been on the show uh, and who writes for uh, Vox and New York and um, and Vice, you know, wrote a piece about the sort of mouth agape uh, response that we had that we were all having to Donald Trump entirely misreading what it meant to have COVID. Now, uh, Ross, you had COVID. Uh, would you ever walk out of a situation, uh, you know, out of that situation and say, don't let it dominate your life? No. And I think one of the reasons why is, you know, I know I had COVID because I got an antibody test months later that showed that I developed yeah. antibodies. So, right. you know, to be clear for the audience, you know, there are two types of tests. There's a test that they talked about all the time in the movies that tells you, like, you know, do you have it right now? Um, yeah. The test they didn't talk about was if you have antibodies, which means did you have it in the past? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, the jury's still out 100% on whether or not this works. But generally, if you've had it in the past, you're good and you can't get it again, at least for the timeline that we're on so far. Um, there was uh, there was the uh, first reported uh, 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 second case that has just come up as well, right? There have been a couple here and there, but, you know, that's generally to be expected. I think so far, based off what we know, people are generally safe. We just don't know how long that'll last. Mm, you know, with yeah. similar uh, viruses in the coronavirus family, so like SARS, uh, people had immunity for up to two years. Um, really, yeah. you know, what you were hoping is that the immunity lasts long enough until a vaccine is available, since that'll give you that boost. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think one of the things that, like I personally struggled with, you know, I had antibodies that I tested positive in July, but I was mm. exposed, you know, from the beginning of March all the way up until July. And there was a time early in March where, you know, I didn't have a fever, but I had like the symptoms of a bad cold. 
And yeah. at the time, you know, the policies at the hospital were, you know, unless you have a fever, you come into work. And yeah. that, that's going to be our benchmark. And, you know, we know a lot better now that a ton of people who have this virus don't have a fever. So right. I don't know when I specifically had COVID. I can guess. But yeah. I do know that even though I followed all the protocols that, you know, both the government and the, ho- the different hospitals around the city put out, I probably went into work when I had it, which means I probably exposed other people, except the fact that I was hopefully wearing enough PPE to prevent that. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that and that I think that that that's a really key comment here, which is that uh, the president's comments about like don't let it dominate your life, and I'm safe now, and I'm I'm, I'm not immune. Uh, I'm immune. Uh, again, the ramblings of a madman in my mind. Um, but but the 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 fact that you had it and you may have exposed somebody else to it, and their response to COVID might be entirely different to yours. You may be asymptomatic, but they may have a severe um, affliction, which makes it very you know like you say, it can kill you. Um, I think is one of the sort of more jarring responses that I think we've seen. And, and certainly the, the overall response to caring for other people seem to, be, uh, seem to be entirely over the head of the capacity of this president. Well, yeah, he's got some real Amorton Joe vibes going, right? Like, do not let COVID dominate your life. Like, it's a very, it's a very Mad Max villain uh, <laughs> sort of uh, sentiment. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, like Shahir has been saying, like, this entire time, like, in America, we like, that's a very individualistic society. And I think, especially because most of the data on masks show that the person who you're helping when you wear is more likely to be someone else than it is to help you. Yeah. And, like, the fact that, you know, people don't really want to do something that inconveniences so much to, you know, maybe help someone they don't know. It's it's so funny. Yeah, and 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 I'm I'm gonna soapbox here for just a moment, but this I, I've been talking a lot about political stuff as we all have on on various platforms. The idea of American individualism, uh, I think, is one of the most damaging things for something like this because everything about the way we discuss how our country was founded and how you engage in the political con like discourse and everything is all about. You as an individual and your individual rights. And, you know, there are aspects of that that are very important. But straight up, I think this individuality is actually killing more people than it is helping at this point. Because, and, 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 and the worst part about it, at least in my humble opinion, is it's kind of a lie. Like, yeah, there's great people that have done great, great Americans that have done great things. But, like... It still took an entire team to get whatever that thing is off the ground. Like, humans do better when you are thinking about other humans. And the narrative behind American individualism, and especially these days at least, on the MAGA side of of the spectrum, is just so, like, for lack of a better term, childish. And... Mm. Uh, it, it was seen sort of firsthand, uh, especially actually, Ross, as you just said, yeah, wearing a mask, not going to save you necessarily mask wearer, but it might save someone else. And when the second you take away that, oh, well, it's not for me, well, then fuck everybody else. And there's a lot of that. And it's, uh, I think, American society mixed with the political climate, mixed with this virus. Again, Ross, to your point, perfect shitstorm on fire uh for the entire thing yeah i like personally hope that masks stick around for a little while i think sort of the rest of the world figured out you know when you're sick you leave the house with a mask on um but you know a long time ago and maybe that's why they did Mm -hmm. so much better than we did but like one thing i'm hoping is that this flu season you know maybe we'll still have a lot of COVID as things get colder and that'll come back a little bit but maybe like the good old flu won't be as bad this year because people aren't giving it to each other as much (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, now that we're kind of we're talking about that Donald Trump uh, factor, um, what what do you, you know, like if a patient came into 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 uh, the ER presenting as as one Donald Trump did um, I and now was being given the kind of um, the kind of drugs that he has been given. Could you could you run us through what's unique about the way he got treated versus the way somebody, uh, you know, ordinarily would get treated? Yeah, so um, it wasn't, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, mystery in terms of how he got treated, but in terms of what's publicly available, it's actually not that much different. Um, He got one main drug that's, you know, not something that we really give to people in the hospital, and that's that that drug from Regeneron. 
Um, it's basically yeah. a manufactured yeah. antibody against the virus, and he got infusions of that. Um, the other drugs that he got, the steroid medication, is you know pretty standard treatment for COVID right now. Um, yeah. You know, I think when people talk about the access to healthcare that he had that nobody else had, you know, it's about like you know having a, him having a private helicopter that's going to take him to the hospital at any given time. And you know, one thing the movie touched on, which we haven't really had, which haven't really talked about so far, is is like who this pandemic hurt more than other people. Mm-hmm. And it really yeah. ended up hurting people who didn't have access to healthcare more than others. You know, even I, you know, came in when, you know, back in February, March, one thing that was like, well, there's a small silver lining to this pandemic, which is that theoretically it's going to hurt everyone equally. And maybe that'll propel people towards more, a more like equitable society in terms of um, how we provide healthcare. But that didn't happen. And if anything, it yeah. just made the problem a little bit worse. Um, so Donald yeah. Trump is really, you know, the way he got healthcare, it's really like a shining example of, how, you know, healthcare is rationed in this country. And, you know, of course, like, we're going to give great healthcare to the president. Like, I don't think we shouldn't have done that. But, like, you know, the fact that he did well is, like, really, you know, part of the same problem, which is what we're seeing, especially in a city like New York, where there's such significant disparities in terms of what access to healthcare people have, where the people who, you know, can make it to a hospital and and pay for it, they end up doing a lot better than the people who can't. Yeah, Yeah. at one point you worked in kind of the epicenter of where New York was suffering the most, which is Elmhurst Hospital, which is not far from where uh, both Matt and I live right now. Um, Would you have seen a patient of, of, you know, Donald Trump's age and, you know, uh, his sort of uh, health makeup, um, but obviously from a different, uh, different corner of the economy? Yeah. So like one of the big problems that Elmhurst Hospital has is it's a public hospital that has not as many resources as a you know big private hospital like Mount Sinai. And it has to serve a much larger and sicker portion of the population than a bigger private hospital. And that hospital ended up getting extremely overwhelmed very quickly. And a lot of the deaths that happened from COVID in that hospital probably would have been prevented if there are more resources available. Um, and it was really, you know, during that, those early stages where things really started to get bad. And I think, you know, that's, that's, Part of what we see, like Mount Sinai Hospital is just a couple blocks away from a public hospital where I'm sure the quality of care is a little bit different. And, you know, not not to say that the, the practitioners of that care, the doctors and nurses at the hospital are any better or worse, but just that, you know, the resources available are, are much different. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. So, it's kind of the same. I mean, you look at either doctors or teachers or anyone in sort of like a public service type of thing. It's a matter of what is allocated to that group, often far more than who is in that group. Um yeah. So I guess uh, we should sum up kind of our feelings about the film itself. And I'll, I'll just sort of open it up and, you know, very briefly, which is that I think it's a fine film. I think there's nothing revelatory here other than putting everything into everything that we understand about COVID into context and suggesting, I think, the thing that uh, a lot of people who are going to the to their polling place in uh, a couple of weeks time will be thinking about is the effect of leadership in a pandemic. And there, there's no revelation here that says anything broader than what we've suggested before, which is, you know, and I'll say it very much uh, outright here, is Donald Trump is not the man for the job and is uh, was the person uh, at the wheel at the worst possible time in history. Um, you know, the question that I, the conversation that I had early on with with friends of about, you know, the presidency doesn't really matter uh, and doesn't really affect people on a day-to-day basis, um, really, um, the argument gets broken down in a case of a pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I think the, the again the statistics that I mentioned earlier, where the United States uh, has uh, I believe one fifth the world's population, or even less than that, uh, um, uh, but has uh, a significant majority of the amount of cases and a significant majority of the amount of deaths. And there's no way to spin that uh, statistic uh, in a in a positive light. I believe it's four percent of the world's population, okay. but then twenty percent of COVID. Percent of the, that's correct. Yeah, something along those lines, and it's. It's horrific. Yeah, and remember, Trump will say, like, you know, we have more cases because we test more cases. But the one, the one thing you can't fake is deaths, you know? Yeah. If you have too many deaths, it doesn't, you know, deaths are a way you can tell how many cases you totally had. Because, you know, if 10% of people yeah. who have it get really sick, then you know you have 10 times that number of people who weren't so, weren't so sick. Yeah, and on that note, our number right now is the guesstimate number. Our number is how many people we've tested that have died. There have been people that have not been tested that have died. Like yeah, absolutely. Like so the the number is far greater than the official death toll. Um it's just mathematically most the most likely scenario. I think one of the things that I also find found rather funny about how this was being politicized was people saying, like, oh well, you know, if someone has another medical condition, 
and they come to the hospital. You know, it wasn't COVID that killed them. It was that other thing. And my favorite tweet that I saw was like, it was a doctor who had type 1 diabetes. And he says, if, you know, if I'm out for a hike and a bear mauls me and then I have to go to the hospital because a bear attacked me. And while I'm there, the doctors like screw up my diabetes medications a little bit and I die from the diabetes. Like the bear is my cause of death, not the diabetes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it, the, the 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 I think you know look no further than the Axios interview with uh, Donald Trump where he tries to spin the I think it's the percentage of recovery that he seems to focus on or that someone has told him uh, to focus on. But even that statistic, we are far below the the rest of the world uh, on uh, in terms of our ability to recover cases. Um, uh, you know, again, I, I think it's a fine documentary. There's nothing revelatory here that you haven't seen in a number of other um, think pieces, news articles. You know, it seems hard to. Come kind of uh, definitively shy away from the fact that Donald Trump, is, you know, what the pandemic has revealed is the value of the presidency to me. And, you know, again, in any ordinary year, I would have suggested that the presidency, you know, affects your lives in sort of um, uh, peripheral, peripherally affecting ways. Uh, but this is one where the, you know, it, it's an absolute direct reflection on our lives. Again, you, all of us are sitting here talking to each other over a Zoom call. Uh, you were talking earlier about telemedicine being <laughs> becoming the way of life. I am uh, teaching a four-year-old uh, how to do math um, at home very badly might I add um, and uh, you know we, we Matt and I who have for four years up until this point would uh, shout at each other across uh, you know a, a very short distance uh, have not actually seen each other in person uh, except for you know passing each other in the street with a mask um, for six months and if that is not a reflection on the immediacy of the effect then 215,000 deaths is and there's no way to change that number um as you say so look i think the documentary is fine um but uh, please go out and vote <laughs> this, this sure. is kind of where i'd sum it up uh i'll say a quick thought and then i'll let i'll let ross wrap up his final thoughts in the film uh i actually think that this is uh again this is one of the first documentaries i think i've ever watched where i knew most of the information already i mean it's because it's we're in it right yeah. um uh, <laughs> the documentary is coming from inside the country um so uh, but with that in mind, I actually think its graphical and auditory presentation was actually really effective. Like a lot of times in in the way I've gotten this information in the past has been through social media or news snippets or whatever, and it's very sensationalized. And while this depth, this doc definitely has a yeah, Trump's the problem sort of angle to it, I feel like it earns it in the way that it shows the stuff chronologically happening. And I think the way the information is graphically treated is always sort of like enhancing but never overshadowing what we're doing. It's not doing like a thing where like it's 100% like really trying to like, look how fucking scary this is. It's like, no, this is plenty scary enough. We're going to give you a shiny graphic and show you but like and talk to you like an adult. Um, and also, one thing that I really liked that I had not seen uh, in a documentary before, because again, it's a very specific type of thing, were the interviewees. I loved the beginnings of every time we were introduced to a new interviewee that was filmed in the United States. And there were these little human moments that they left in uh, of them all kind of marveling or commenting on the way that like the camera rig that they built or like the way that they were going to have to conduct this interview with a camera they bring into their house by themselves mm -hmm. or with a plastic sheeting all around when you cut to the back and you could see like how weird this entire process was. I think that was actually those specific moments were very effective for me because it not only showed all of the stuff that the documentary was saying about the way that life is 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 now forever changed, you know, while a pandemic is going on. But it also got to show, like, yeah, even everything down to making the thing that's telling you that everything is different now has also changed. And it was a really, really effective sort of, like, thing I knew. But I was like, oh, no, this is something I think will be helpful when people are digesting this information in this way. So I, I actually think it was better than fine. I think they did a, a really good job. The, the the one criticism I'll give it, and it's not even the filmmaker's fault, is that it's not done. Like, we, yeah. this is, you know, like, uh, the, the resolution of the film, uh, it, not good uh, and not complete because we're still in it. So, but I won't blame the documentarians for that. Uh, Ross, what do you think? What do you, the final thoughts on this, uh, on this beastie? Yeah, I definitely think like it was certainly sensational, but like what isn't about this virus? It's a sensational thing. Yeah. And 
I think like one of the ways in which I know that it was done really well is just like the emotional response that I had when I was watching it. Like I, we were saying before when I was talking to Shahir, like this gave me a little bit of PTSD. And like the fact that it was able to do that means it must have been well made. One thing that I think about with this film is what what sort of role will it play in the future, you know, three, four or five years from now when hopefully this is a thing of the past. And I think, you know, it's those human moments that you were talking about that might stay, you know, like there's going to be another COVID documentary that comes out oh, after yeah. this is all done. That's going to be more comprehensive. But I think the parts that it might not capture is kind of those things that this movie did well, which is like, you know, showing them take off their mask as they sit down for the interview and that kind of mm. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I, I think uh, we will revisit this topic in some way uh, very soon. But I'm curious, uh, I guess maybe, Ross, uh, whether you would recommend this over the 1995 Pride and Prejudice or, or not. <laughs> um, the answer to that would be no. I would recommend the 1995 <laughs> Pride and Prejudice because I, I think, you know, mental health is important. And if yeah. this is the kind of movie that might hurt your mental health, then maybe stay away. But if you want to go for a ride, then go for it. <laughs> then watch Prime. Right. <laughs> um, uh, hey, well, everybody, this has been the only podcast about the film totally under control. Ross, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. This was an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. Uh, where can folks find you if they were so inclined on the interwebs? And hopefully not in the ER. Like, right. Don't don't like we don't want them to find you there because. That would be bad. So I, I stay totally away from social media. I have a, oh, good a for you. private Instagram account, but you know, yeah. I try I try to stay out of the conversation unless okay. it's something that I happen to know a lot about, which is nothing at this time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That is not true. Fair enough. Uh, again, I actually I I recall a time, this is a sort of a, another funny anecdote, was that uh, you and Jane, another friend of ours who's in the same MD PhD program, uh, came over to our house for uh, you know, just a catch up with something like that and i had recently been to the hospital uh for i think i uh something a kidney stone or something like that but it was like it, there was this moment where like every doctor in the room was giving me advice about my kidney stone and i was and i was very i was very, just thankful to have everyone around but it was just kind of this funny moment we're having a lot of smart people in the room who have a lot of interest in um in how to treat and how to look after people um was very reassuring so i appreciate uh you being there, and also being my my child's first babysitter, by the way. Drink a lot of water, Shahir. <laughs> I know. I, I do One of the best I things you can do for a kidney that. stone. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, Shahir, when you're not passing um, horrible <laughs> matter through parts of your body that uh, it doesn't belong in, where can folks find you? You can find me not being dehydrated, uh, terribly dehydrated, on my website, www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are diagnosing the country, what ails this country, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me screaming into the void of YouTube over at my website, uh, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram and PSN, and of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we're doing over on Extra Credits. We just started... Uh, uh, if you can't tell, uh, a politics series over there. We just had our first one launched. By the time this one comes out, we'll have our second episode coming out. We're fixing politics. Uh, we're, we're trying anyway, or at least giving ideas to start a conversation, treating it the government and the way that the United States deals with politics as a game and giving it actual patch notes. The first one we talked about social media and the one that comes out, I think the same day that this comes out, Sunday to Monday, is literally called, it's subtitled, Never Going to Jail. So you can go check that out and see uh, what our ideas are to solve that particular problem. Um, and, uh, as always, you can reach us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. We have had people uh, write in to tell us uh, uh, things to review uh, because they had decided to check their voter registration because of our urging to do so. And we still urge you to check your voter registration, enroll to vote, make a plan to vote uh, that is safe for you and your family. Uh, the, the worst thing you can do is sit out this election. Um, and, and as a reward, we will review anything you want to send us. Uh, that could be your podcast, which we have a, a review of coming yep. up. Uh, it could be your website, which we will just review. It could be your short film from uh, high school. It could be, as we've alluded to in the past, your private pictures that we don't want to see. We will do, we'll review anything you want to send us. Uh, so please 
uh, go to vote.gov to check your enrollment and to make sure you register to vote if you're eligible to do so. This is the first time I will be eligible to vote in the United States, and I'm making a point to do so. Uh, so please join me in voting. Shahir, you want to come uh, with me at 6 a.m.? I, that's what I that actually that is uh, on the twenty fourth. Is that is that your game plan? Oh no, I was going to go on the day, but I could go early, I guess. Yeah, uh, I'm planning to vote. Uh, th- th- this is important, actually. Uh, if you can vote early, uh, please do so. It'll help uh, ease the lines on November third. Um, and and uh, you know, please, uh, uh, as we understand it, voting in person is the safest is the is the way to to most assuredly um, get your vote counted. Um, as there has been uh, some misinformation being spread about uh, mail-in voting, um, probably another documentary to be talking about you know, that as well. A thing we've been doing uh, since the Civil War with no problem, but it's fine. No, it's a problem yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so please, uh, yes, if you see, if you want to join Matt and I at the polls, we will gladly meet you and socially distance, wear masks, uh, all that good stuff. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk to you all next week, hopefully with something a little lighter, but a little spookier. Oh, it is Halloween. Ross, what is your favorite Halloween movie? Do you have, Ugh. do you have a favorite? What, what's your favorite scary movie? If it's not Pride it's not and Pride Prejudice, Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> yeah. I actually have never seen that movie, um, <laughs> but it is a real one. Uh, my favorite scary movie. My favorite scary movie from when I was a kid. So when I was thir- so like the Chronicles of Ross's most terrifying uh-huh. film when I was really really young was Jumanji. That movie gave me when I was like yes. six years old like nightmares for months. It's a scary yeah. movie. It's heavy. Yeah, it was the monkeys with the knives that really did it for yeah. me. <laughs> um, and then when I was a little older, The Ring. When I was like eleven or twelve. Um, the uh, the American or the Japanese version? The American one was a little more scary, but I, I did watch both. Yeah, and the the American has a New Zealander in the lead, by the way. I didn't know that. But but, Henderson, yeah. but trust me, Ross, if there's a New Zealander in a film, Shahir's going to let you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, a New Zealander and an Australian, by the way. What? Wow. Yeah, just, just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, stay safe until then. And uh, yeah, talk to you later. Bye, everyone. Bye.